This audio production was made in collaboration with Audible Anarchist. A Power Governments Cannot Suppress by Howard Zinn Read by Lindsay Thorson The Forbidden Word, Class Political leaders often become annoyed when someone suggests that we live in a class society dominated by moneyed interests. During recent presidential campaigns, Republicans and Democrats have battled their way to the White House without ever acknowledging that a wide range of economic classes exist in this country. Only Ralph Nader dared to suggest that the United States is divided among the rich, the poor, and the nervous in between. Such talk is considered politically intolerable and was enough to have Nader barred from the nationally televised presidential debates. The U.S. political establishment insists that we mustn't talk about class. Only Marxists do that. Although 30 years before Marx was born, James Madison, father of the Constitution, said that there was an inevitable conflict in society between those who had property and those who did not. Our political leaders would prefer us to believe that we are one family. Me and Exxon, you and Microsoft, the children of the CEOs and the children of the restaurant workers. We must believe our interests are the same. That's why officials speak of us going to war for the national interest, as if it were in all our interest. That's also why we maintain an enormous military budget for national security, as if our nuclear weapons strengthen the security of all, and not the securities of some. It's also why our culture is soaked in a particular strain of patriotism, the idea of which is piped into our consciousness from first grade onward when we begin every school day by reciting the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I remember stumbling over that big word, indivisible, at the age of six. Only later did I begin to understand that our nation, from the start, has been divided by class, race, national origin, and has been beset by fierce conflicts, yes, class conflicts, throughout all our history. Mainstream culture labors strenuously to keep that out of the history books, to maintain the idea of a monolithic, noble us against a shadowy, but unmistakably evil them. It starts with the story of the American Revolution, and, as the movie The Patriot, kindergarten history, put on screen for millions of viewers, tells us once more, we were united in glorious struggle against British rule. The mythology surrounding the Founding Fathers is based on the idea that we Americans are indeed one family and that our Constitution represents all our interests, as declared proudly by the opening words of its preamble, we, the people of the United States. It may therefore seem surly for us to acknowledge that the American Revolution was not a war waged by a united population. The 150 years leading up to the Revolution were filled with class conflict. Thus, when the Revolutionary War began, some colonists saw the war as one of liberation, but many others saw it as the substitution of one set of rulers for another. As for enslaved black people and American Indians, there was little to choose between the British and the Americans. The nation came into existence with the stirring language of the Declaration of Independence, a manifesto of democracy. It promised an equal right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. However, those noble words concealed harsh realities about the American colonies that rebelled against England. They obviously did not apply to the enslaved black people, who made up almost 20% of the colonial population. Indeed, Jefferson was rebuffed when he attempted to introduce a paragraph in the Declaration denouncing the slave trade. The words of the Declaration also did not apply to indigenous Americans, who were described as, quote, merciless Indian savages, unquote. The Declaration of Independence, pretending to national unity against British rule, gave little indication that the revolutionaries were not united in their enthusiasm for independence, that American society had long been riven by internal conflicts, servants and slaves against their masters, tenants against landlords, 
poor people in cities rioting for food and flour against profiteering merchants, mutinies of sailors against their captains. There was not unswerving enthusiasm within the Revolutionary Army that fought for independence from England. The historian Eric Foner describes the war as, quote, a time of immense profits for some colonists and terrible hardships for others, unquote. The class differences were keenly felt in the ranks of the army, where terrible hardships fell, not upon the officer class, who were well-fed, well-clothed, well-paid, but upon the rank-and-file soldier. In October of 1779, with the war four years old, the city of Philadelphia witnessed what came to be known as the Fort Wilson Riot. Soldiers marched into the city and to the house of James Wilson, a wealthy lawyer, protesting what they considered profiteering from the war and Wilson's opposition to the Democratic Constitution adopted in Pennsylvania. During the Revolution, casualties exceeded, in proportion to population, American casualties in World War II. Inside the Revolution, class conflict came dramatically alive with mutinies from George Washington's army. In 1781, after enduring five years of war, more than 1,000 soldiers from Pennsylvania, mostly foreign-born, from Ireland, Scotland, and Germany, dispersed their officers, killing a captain, wounding others, and marched, armed with cannon, toward the Continental Congress at Philadelphia. They had seen their officers paid handsomely, fed and clothed well, while the privates and sergeants were fed slop, marched in rags without shoes, were paid in virtually worthless continental currency, or were not paid at all for months. They were abused, beaten, and whipped by their officers for the smallest breach of discipline. Their deepest grievance was that they wanted out of the war, claiming their terms of enlistment had expired, and they were kept in the army by force. Today, a similar grievance is felt by the many U.S. soldiers in Iraq who are forced by the U.S. government to stay beyond their terms of duty, a policy the military euphemistically calls stop-loss. They were aware that in the spring of 1780, 11 Morristown deserters were sentenced to death, but at the last minute received a reprieve, except for one soldier who had forged discharges for a hundred men. He was hanged. George Washington, facing by this time 1,700 mutineers, a substantial part of his army, assembled at Princeton, New Jersey, and decided to make concessions. Many of the rebels were allowed to leave the army, and Washington asked the governors of the various states for money to deal with the grievances of the soldiers. The Pennsylvania line quieted down. But when another mutiny broke out in the New Jersey line, involving only a few hundred, Washington ordered harsh measures. He saw the possibility of this dangerous spirit spreading. Two of the, quote, most atrocious offenders, unquote, were court-martialed on the spot and sentenced to be shot. Their fellow mutineers, some of them weeping as they did so, carried out the executions. Howard Fast tells us the story of the mutinies in his novel The Proud and the Free. Drawing from the classic historical account in Carl Van Doren's Mutiny in January, Fast dramatizes the class conflict inside the Revolutionary Army. One of his characters, the mutinous soldier Jack Maloney, recalls the words of Thomas Paine and the promise of freedom and says that, yes, he is willing to die for that freedom, but, quote, not for that craven Congress in Philadelphia, not for the fine Pennsylvania ladies in their silks and satins, not for the property of every dirty lord and fat patroon in New Jersey, unquote. In the Mexican War of 1846 to 1848, an American army marched into Mexico and quickly defeated the opposing force, with the result that the United States took almost half of Mexico's territory. The U.S. Army consisted of volunteers, half of them recent immigrants from Ireland and Germany, lured by money and the promise of a hundred acres of land. But disillusionment grew quickly as the battles became bloody, and sickness, suffering, and death plagued the soldiers. Desertions multiplied, and as General Winfield Scott moved toward the final battle for Mexico City, seven of his eleven regiments evaporated, their enlistment times up, 
the Massachusetts volunteers, the half who survived the war, booed their commanding officer at a reception after the war ended. Class anger erupted again during the Civil War in both Northern and Confederate armies. The draft riots in New York and other cities, protesting the fact that the rich could buy their way out of military service, were reflections of this anger. In the South, as the war went on, desertions grew, often stirred by the fact that the families of soldiers back home were going hungry while plantation owners, more concerned with profits than with patriotism, were growing cotton instead of food. When the war for independence was won, a new government was formed to serve the interests of slaveholders, merchants, and manufacturers, while offering white males with some property a degree of influence, but not dominance, in the political process. By its domestic and foreign policies, the new American government would maintain the dominant position of the wealthy in society over the next two centuries and beyond. Its legislation would be class legislation, tariffs for the manufacturers, subsidies for the railroads, oil companies, and other giant corporations. Armed force would be used to expel the American Indian tribes from their land, open the West to enterprise, and put down rebellious workers who went out on strike. The history of the 200 years that followed the revolution is a history of control of the nation by one class, as the government, solidly in the hands of the rich, gave huge gifts of the nation's resources to the railroad magnates, the industrialists, and the ship owners. Historian Charles Beard, in the first years of the Great Depression, wrote caustically about the myth of rugged American individualism, noting that industrial and financial leaders were not rugged enough to make their own way in the world and had to be subsidized, and silver spoon-fed by the government. Pointing to class divisions in this country has always been dangerous. Thus, when Eugene V. Debs, opposing World War I, told an assembly in Ohio that, quote, the master class has always brought a war and the subject class has always fought the battle, unquote, he was not tolerated. Debs was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Oliver Wendell Holmes, in the spirit of patriotic liberalism, affirmed the sentence for a unanimous Supreme Court. Today, even the slightest suggestion that we are a nation divided by class brings angry reactions. However, reality repeatedly exposes the myth of a classless society, as when Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans, and the whole world could see how the desperation of the poor and the black was ignored by the government. The fact that half the population does not vote is itself a sign that the poor, who make up most of the non-voters, do not feel represented by either of the major parties. A New York Times reporter, in a rare excursion into the other America, spoke to people in Cross City, Florida, during a recent presidential election and concluded, quote, People here look at the two opposing candidates and see two men born to the country club, men whose family histories jingle with silver spoons. They appear to people here just the same, unquote. Cindy Lamb, a cashier at a Chevron filling station and wife of a construction worker, told the reporter, quote, I don't think they think about people like us, and if they do care, they're not going to do anything for us. Maybe if they had ever lived in a two-bedroom trailer, it would be different, unquote. An African-American woman, a manager at McDonald's who makes slightly more than minimum wage, said about the two opposing presidential candidates, quote, I don't even pay attention to those two, and all my friends say the same. My life won't change, unquote. In other nations, class difference is not so obscured. During the 2006 presidential campaign in Mexico, the Mexican people had a choice between a range of candidates who represented clearly different class interests and who spoke publicly about those differences. Not so here. Come the next U.S. presidential election, we can expect the same class that has always dominated our political and economic systems to continue to control the issues discussed, continue to exclude candidates like Ralph Nader from national debate, and thus continue to hold power. 
Citizens will therefore face the same challenge the day after the election that we have always faced. How to bring together the class of have-nots, a great majority of the country, into the kind of social movement that in the past has gained some measure of justice and has made the people in charge tremble at the prospect of class warfare. Since it imposes silence on these issues, our political system, bipartisan in its coldness to human rights, cannot be respected. It can only be protested against, challenged, or, in the words of the Declaration of Independence, referring to a government that has violated its responsibility to its people, be, quote, altered or abolished, unquote. That's a tall order, but we can prepare for it by a multitude of short steps in which citizens and immigrants organize social movements outside of the party system. Such movements, responding to the great challenges of the new century, can transform the current system and bring us closer to real democracy. This has been a production of Audible Anarchist. You can find more Audible Anarchist on YouTube.